Come on in, sit back and relax. You're listening to episode 210 of the Wolf Tech Today podcast. I'm your host, Craig Iskowitz, founder of Ezra Group Consulting. And this podcast features interviews, analysis, and news on the trends and best practices all around with management technology. My guest for this episode is the man, the legend, Joe Duran, managing partner of Rise Growth. Now, I'm sure everyone listening to this knows who Joe is, but just in case someone maybe new to the industry is listening or you've been living under a rock for the past 20 plus years, let me give you a quick uh, overview, a uh, quick bio on Joe and his history, um, his background is so interesting. Um, I'm going to not give it justice here, um, but there's a lot of articles online. You can find uh, more information and more details about his background. But very quickly, uh, Joe was born in Zimbabwe, uh, formerly the uh, called Rhodesia, an English, uh, a British colony uh, in Africa. Uh, during their long civil war for independence, uh, Joe worked odd jobs to earn enough money for a plane ticket to London when he was 18. I uh, traveled around Europe, uh, continuing to find menial employment, eventually um, emigrating to the U.S. by 21 when he was alone with $600 to his name. Now, Joe started uh, in the industry as an intern at a small investment management firm in Southern California at the age of 24. He made a dramatic rise up through the ranks, becoming head of sales and marketing by the time he was 28, and then president of the firm a few years later. In 2001, the company, which was then called Centurion Capital, was acquired by General Electric, and Joe cashed out with $13 million to his name. Now, he could have rested on his laurels, um, but instead, in 2005, he started his own company called Unity Capital. Joe built a unique process for his advisors to root uh, to onboard clients that includes their own software tools called Honest Conversations and Money Mind that were designed to draw out clients' feelings about money and finance, uh, decision-making, as well as ensuring a consistent investor experience across the firm. Now, that firm became very successful, and in 2019, Joe sold United Capital to Goldman Sachs for $750 million. And now, uh, after moving on from Goldman, he's launching his latest venture, uh, a sort of RIA incubator called Rise Growth. We're going to talk a lot about it in this episode. Um, and I've got some great takeaways um, from our conversation, some of the areas of focus that um, Joe is uh, working on with, with Rise Growth and some of the things around efficiency um, and owning your own data that we, uh, of course, agree on. Um, talking about different natural plateaus and capacity limits of RIAs at different levels. And then I, I uh, drilled down into some of his best practices around M&A since he's completed uh, over 150 M&A transactions. So we're going to get into that in just a few minutes. Uh, but before we get started, I have a message for any executives at wealth management firms. Your tech debt is holding back your business growth. Your old software platform is old and rusted and falling apart and needs an overhaul. Your disparate systems don't communicate with each other, and it's driving your ops staff and advisors crazy with manual processes and errors. So if you're in charge of tech and ops at a broker-dealer, an RIA, a family office, or a TAMP, you should run, not walk, to our website, ezragroup.com, and fill out the Contact Us form on the homepage. Our experienced team can evaluate your, your current tech ecosystem, deliver targeted recommendations, optimize your existing systems and operations, or even run an RFP and help you implement new software to take your firm to the next level. You can take advantage of our free consultation offer by going to ezragroup.com. Now, a couple of quick housekeeping items. Please subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss an episode. Please check out uh, a charitable uh, sponsor called the Invest in Others 
Charitable Foundation. You can learn more about them at investinothers.org. All right, now let's kick this thing off. I'm excited to introduce our next guest. It's the incomparable Joe Duran, founder and managing partner of Rise Growth Partners. Joe, thanks for being here, man. I'm thrilled to be here, Craig. It's good to, to finally connect. Now, I am thrilled. It's my, it's my turn to be thrilled here, but having you on, on the program. We, we have crossed paths a lot, but uh, your first time here on, on the podcast, we're really happy to talk to you, learn more about Rise Growth. Where are you calling in from? I'm in Laguna Beach, uh, and our folks are all dispersed across the country. Uh, I like to find great talent. I don't really care where that talent lives. So we have an amazing team of people. Keeps getting bigger. Quite exciting. Uh, I was uh, just saying I was jealous living in New Jersey, knowing the great weather and the great view you have at Laguna Beach. Uh, it's certainly a, a fantastic place to live. Yeah, quite. it is quite fortunate. You might not love our tax system, although it's not much better in your side, your side of the country. We can have a whole another podcast on taxes yeah. and business climate. Yeah, New Jersey versus California. That'll be a slugfest. Yeah. Um, let's let's jump right in. Can you give us a 30-second elevated pitch for Rise Growth Partners? Rise, Rise Growth Partners was basically the idea of supporting the next generation of national funds. We basically want to be the most exceptional growth partner that anyone could want if they want to build a national fund. And so we're tr looking to back firms that have one to five billion dollars in assets. They're looking to go to fifteen to twenty-five billion, and we have a team of people that have done it and learned. And it's basically the partner I wish I'd had when I built my prior two firms. It seems like the ultimate in partners, right? So having built a, a firm from the ground up, you certainly know what you need. Uh, but there's a lot of companies out there doing similar things and your competitors out there also saying similar things. So how do you differentiate Rise Growth from all the other RE aggregators and networks that are out there? Well, there's, there's really two kinds of, the reason we're creating this, you know, this is the third business I've been involved in, in starting. My first one was the first TAMP in the country. Mm -hmm. It's now called Asset Mark, but I started a firm. We started a, with a firm called Farmland. It became Centurion Capital. We sold it to General Electric. That then uh, got merged with Asset Mark and is now its own enterprise. At the time, people said, well, why should I have my mutual funds managed and a fee charged? And it was because nobody was managing them. But when we started, everyone thought we were crazy. It's now the way the whole industry operates. Uh, when I started United Capital, the idea was, hey, we want to build a national wealth management firm because there is no national firm that leads with people's lives rather than their investments. And so... We created, used behavioral economics, great technology to really create a scaled, integrated national firm. And everybody was under the one brand, one brand, one culture, one platform. Uh, and I then worked for Goldman, as you know, for four years as a partner there running uh, what was called Workplace and Personal Wealth, which included ACO, as well as my old business, as well as the digital coaching uh, work that we did for corporates. And when I left, I thought before I left even, I was thinking, you know, it seems like there's not a great home for these folks who have $2 billion, $3 billion, growing rapidly, younger advisors. Their only choices are A, sell to a national aggregator and give up all the rest of your upside, where if you have 15 years of runway left, is definitely not your best path. You might get a nice big cash check up front, but you don't get to participate in the growth of your own enterprise. And so if you're in your 40s, 
early 50s and you've got a great enterprise that's growing rapidly, your equity appreciation is much too great, no matter what price you're receiving today. But that's the one choice that people had. And if you want to sell and get the maximum price, I think that's a perfectly good outcome. There are lots of great firms out there like United Capital that are national firms that integrate. You give, give up your brand, you give up your way of operating, and you basically join an established operation. And then the second choice you have is you, you're big enough, you can get minority investments from firms that will take a financial interest, but bring you nothing in actually helping you to scale, figure out the technology, figure out your operating model that you operate under, help you do acquisitions, help you grow organically. And so I thought there's just a gap in the market for these high growth, ambitious firms that want to change the world, that don't want to sell the enterprise, give up their, their operating methods. We can make the next generation of, of firms. And there are lot, there's lots of money floating around the industry, but there aren't a lot of people who've actually done it before. And so what I thought was, I think we could be not just an advisor, an investor, we can also be the best partner to just guide and help these firms to figure out what they don't know. Because there are these natural plateaus in our industry where you get stuck at a billion, then you'll get stuck at two and a half billion, then you get stuck at five, then you get stuck at 10, then you'll get stuck again at 15 and then at 25. Like there are these natural capacity limits that happen in our industry that you've got to break through. And if you haven't done it before, you really don't know how to get past it. And so that's really what I thought would be interesting is to to say, can we be the greatest partner in the world and get paid by participating in the equity success of the underlying enterprise? And so everything we do is to be completely aligned with the underlying firm. And we only make our money if we help you deliver to yourself the highest rate of return possible and growing the equity of your underlying enterprise. And that doesn't exist today. There's actually no one out there. We created this category because obviously there's strategic buyers, there's financial buyers. So I think we we created a new category, which is the strategic financial partner, where it's basically a synergistic partner. We take the best of both worlds and bring you what we hope is a great partnership. You know, I've heard you speak at so many conferences. Um, and one thing I have always like about you is you ask one question, but you give me back like, the answers to 10 other questions uh -huh. and I've got so many, now I've got to peel that apart. There's so there was, that's a, that was a very deep, deep response. So I want to roll back a couple steps here. One of the things I, I really liked about United Capital and you mentioned um, the, the technology, your no national firm is leading with people's lives versus their investments. Yes. One of the things I liked about what you did at United Capital is you built your own tech platform, which you, you called FinLife. Yeah. And you build a tool called Money Mind. And yeah. I saw that as one as the first advice engagement tool that was way yeah. ahead of the curve. Now we've got a lot of advice engagement tools out oh. there. Um, how do you see that as being something that that really changed the market? And are you planning on building something similar? Yeah. So I'll tell you the FinLife, there was the lovely behavioral economics tools we had in place, which were really differentiated at the time. But the thing that powered everything was the middleware. And interestingly enough, that's still an area where most of the efficiencies get made. The biggest difference between a $3 billion firm and a $30 billion firm, the $30 billion firm typically has integrated middleware. What do I mean by middleware? The thing that connects all the data flow from all the subcomponents they use. No one's going to change the planning software they use. 
use finance through money or the custodian that they use or their onboarding system or their portfolio accounting system. But that data lives in its own silos. And what you have is a choice. You can join Orion's ever increasing but closed world and live in this in their silo. Or you can join Investnet's closed universe or Salesforce's closed universe. And I, I know that what we believed in is we got to control our destiny because maybe I like again, there's no I'm not making endorsements here. But if you love financial planning on Money Guide Pro, then you're in Investnet's world. If you like Orion's portfolio accounting system, you're in Orion's world. And if you're using Salesforce, your CRM, all three of them are trying to basically lock you into their ecosystems, which creates incredible challenges. And it's kind of like the relationship between the US and China. It's cooperative for now, but it keeps becoming more and more painful. As you know, when you shift from Zoom to Google Meets, the microphone doesn't work or something doesn't work because all these places are trying to create closed architecture communities even though they say you can API in. Mm -hmm. And I firmly believe that the you have to control your own destiny, which means you must have your own ecosystem, which allows you to then control your data. Because basically, the entire future of our industry and of technology is really about data management and flow. Mm -hmm. And so I'm a huge believer, if we're talking on a tech podcast here, that mm -hmm. you must be in the data business. Because we're in the information business. We give advice. And so you need to make sure that you have the ability to flow data from where you need it to where you need it. AI is having a massive impact on this. But you need to have middleware architecture allows that to happen for three reasons. Number one, for efficiency and your ability to actually onboard clients and manage them at scale. You cannot have to enter different data in all the different places. Second, in order to manage the business as a whole and what's happening in the underlying business flows, you need to be able to look through the underlying systems into one aggregated management system. So efficiency and then data anal analytics. And then third, if you want to apply AI at some point to tell you what the next best action is or to give you smart analytics about what's working and not working, then you need to have this middleware data flow in order to make that happen. And that requires, in essence, your ability to build your own ecosystem so you can get what you need that reflects the business that you're running. Now, again, all of these different ecosystems will try to convince you that they're building the next ecosystem, but they're going to want you to live within their construct. It's kind of like being in the Apple world. It's really hard to leave Apple land if you're in Apple. It's same thing with you're in Google. And so the question is how to do it when you only have two or three billion and can't commit the level of resources. And that's an area we brought in Brian Shenson, the head of uh, technology with third-party solutions at Schwab. He helped me build FinLife, and he's one of our partners here, to really think about how we help these local firms. Because again, there are great solutions that we have partnerships with where you're, you can have an open architecture solution and then deliver to the clients what they need or your advisors a workstation or connect to all of your back office functionality in one seamless solution that is that belongs to the partner firms that we work with. Another deep answer to a question. Uh, I was going to mention uh, Brian Shenson. I'm, we're 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 pretty good friends. I was I was when I saw him at Futureproof, and he mentioned he was joining your team. So that was a, a great great hire on your part there. I have to say. Yeah, we're very excited about it. It's hard. It's hard to attract 
great people because there's so many opportunities for them. But if you've got a great reputation in the industry and people, you know, people talk about, it might be, so there are, sometimes there are great firms, but the people running them maybe don't have the best environment. And I tell you, honestly, our, our industry has so little imagination. Hmm. Everyone's just copying everyone else. And so for me, I find that incredibly boring. Once I've climbed a mountain, I've climbed it. I don't want to do it a third time. Right. So like I, everything I do is a constant evolution of what I think is needed right now and where I think the industry will be in five or 10 years. And if you think about it, five or 10 years, we're basically in phase three of the wealth management industry. Phase one, it's a cottage industry with thousands of sole practitioners at the big wirehouses. But the independent RIA, the fiduciary space, was really a cottage industry. Phase two is the evolution of national firms. And we certainly saw that with United Capital and Wealth Enhancement Group and Mariner and you name it. There's lots of these large national firms now. Phase three is when those large national firms, now, now if you think about it in the next five years, several of them will be at quarter of a trillion to half a trillion in assets. And you'll have these super regionals. And those large national firms are going to have to buy 10 to $20 billion firms because it doesn't move the needle for them to get involved with 500 million to a to billion dollar firms, right. which is exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing. Cause I'm like, look, there's going to be a mountain of opportunities. If you can build a 10 to $20 billion RIA and your valuations will be very, very competitive because these large national firms and the private equity firms that want to grow you from 20 billion to 50 billion, mm -hmm. but that's a lot more work. It's actually remarkably easy to grow you from two to ten. Mm. Now, not not for firms who haven't <laughs> done it, but we know the subcomponents. Like it's four or five acquisitions, fully integrated, mm. a scalable platform, a great brand, a unique segment that you can service, and we can do all of that and make really move the needle. But for a lot of these firms, where we are right now in the industry is we're entering this phase three, where there's a huge advantage to scale. One thing you mentioned as well, we just talked about the different plateaus of assets. You said there's a plateau at 1 billion, another at two and a half, another at five, another at 10. What is it about those numbers that create the natural plateau? You know, I, I wish I could give you a magical answer, but here's what I know for myself. Uh, having done this twice, up to about 100 million, you have a lifestyle business. And that's probably true up, all the way up to 500 million. And what determines your size is basically how rich are your friends and your friends' friends, because you can have 300 clients. Mm -hmm. And then you get to an ensemble, maybe a partnership, you join someone else, or you have really rich clients. Mm -hmm. Or maybe you make it to a billion. You can get to a billion dollars a lifestyle business. If you crack the code and then start operating as a centralized managed scalable business, you'll get to two and a half billion. But that requires the founder and CEO to let go of control and actually bring in operating partners who can actually give them leverage. And interesting enough, 90% of our industry is run by very big egoed people who don't like to give up control. So <laughs> they will always have their little barbershop. It'll be fine. They'll have a great life. And mm. there's nothing wrong with that. But if you want to get to two and a half billion, you have to have professional leadership. And the job is completely different. And so I was always a, a very good salesman, but I hated the repetition of being an advisor. So I'd meet with clients. I'm like, I'm bored with this. I want to do something different. And so 
I would bring in people to service the clients. And then I'm like, well, let's do acquisitions because then they're coming, they're basically aqua hires. Then I'm like, let's do bigger, bigger acquisitions. And so that's for me, just the way I was wired is I like running and building big things. Mm. But that's not true of everyone running an RIA. Some of them are amazing advisors who really like the end-to-end control aspects of being your own owner-operator. In order to get to an art billion, you have to you have to get the buses bigger. You need people to fill the seats, and you need to know what those seats are. And you have to be willing to invest in yourself as a leader and entrepreneur. Many of these folks aren't, but there's a learning process. If you can get, that's why I like the two to five billion because they've kind of figured out a lot of the pieces. But then this is the hardest part: is you basically maxed out probably where your brand can go without spending and investing, neither organic or inorganic acquisitions. And most of these firms have no idea how to begin that voyage. They're like, well, I'll do acquisitions, but they don't know how to do them. They don't know how to structure them. Most importantly, they don't know how to filter for bad acquisitions because that's (laughs) the worst distraction in the world is a bad acquisition. They're just like, well, if I got to grow, I got to do acquisitions, Hmm. but it's not a hobby. Or they have a very weak organic strategy, which is frankly, the best thing you can do is grow your organic but they're not comfortable in the digital world. They really don't have done nothing to differentiate their brand from every other wealth manager in the world. And that's our job. Our job is to partner with these great firms and say, hey, we're not behavioral economics so that every touch point is totally different for your clients than anyone else. We're going to help you to tell your story in a way that makes you memorable and impression and make an impression. And then we're going to do both organic and inorganic with a lighthouse message to attract people that are drawn to what you're doing. And it won't be everyone. But these are all things that, again, easy to say, not so easy to do, and requires capital. And honestly, you save a lot of money if you don't go down a a bunch of blind alleys. And you can only do that if somebody's been on that road before. And I was like, that's a bad turn right there. And then, of course, you have to have the respect and, and willingness to listen on the other side. So, you know, when... It doesn't matter how good our ideas are. If the firm who has control has no interest in listening to those ideas, our job is to say, hey, can we find great firms Mm -hmm. with great leadership that we can influence and help to do something greater? And again, the the natural plateaus are a a constraint usually of leadership because the bottleneck is always the top of the bottle. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, it's lack of know-how about what's it going to take to get to that next level. When you're building up firms from one to five and getting them to 20 to 30 or or even larger, um, is there a, a saturation point in the national RIA market? Can there be too many of those firms where you're going to start seeing uh, that it's get harder and harder to get the next firm to that level? Or is it because we're in phase three and these super regionals are going to have to be buying up 10 to $20 billion firms at a fast rate that there's really no end in sight to how many we need? There'll be no end in sight because the reality is having worked at a large national bank at Wirehouse, they can never do the things that an independent RI can do. Mm. And so, again, I have nothing but respect and love for my experience at Goldman Sachs. Honestly, the most amazing people, although I know all these warehouses and large national banks get a bad rep. I actually loved my time there. I learned a ton but they're also in a completely different regulatory environment. They are basically, the government spends so much time regulating them that there's very little latitude to do some of the amazing things 
that you can do if you're an independent firm. Tax prep, uh, estate planning, you can do the whole gamut of services as a fiduciary, not as a as a registered representative that gives you a lot more latitude. Um, what they do have that's a huge advantage is they have really great risk controls. And a lot of these large national firms haven't got the kinds of systems in place that will be necessary. But I think that there's no end in sight for the opportunity for RIAs. And I also see no end in sight if you have a 10 to $20 billion RIA for the opportunity set that's available. I do not know whether there is an answer for the $100 billion RIA. I, I don't know what the exit looks like for them because they can't really go public because the markets aren't giving them the valuation that independent companies are getting, private companies in the wealth space. So it's an interesting question. What happens to these large national firms? But if you think about it, it's happened in accounting, it's happened in legal practices, and there's still a never-ending series of acquisitions in accounting and legal because everyone still needs lawyers and accountants. And everyone will always need a financial advisor because the minute things are too complicated or the cost of being wrong is really high, you need a professional to either blame or help you take the load off. And that's true for as long as there's been money and it will be true as long as there is money. Bring me someone to blame, said the king. <laughs> Whose fault is this? Earlier you said, uh, you talked about the different closed worlds of Orion and InvestNet and Salesforce. Uh, what about your your platform? You're, you're, you're pitching your enterprise technology platform as one of the benefits of Rise growth. What are the core components of that that you're using to, to build this? The core components more than anything is that it is built on your stack and it is a way to transparently see what's happening in the underlying business out of the gate. So you can see inflows, outflows, and activities all integrated in whatever your combination you have because we know that there's really only two or three planning software that everyone uses. It's only two or three CRMs everyone uses. So this, once you have the fully integrated elements, you can do anything. And we've done a couple of really great, of some really interesting work with a firm called Uncork, with another firm called Jiffy AI that we're working with to say, hey, how do we put all these pieces together in the optimal way? We have not, Brian's working hard and diligently with these groups and others to think about the systems, but we obviously want to work in conjunction with our first two partner firms, three partner firms, and we don't have those done yet. So I think early next year, certainly the firms we're talking to are fully aware of what we're looking to build out. They'll help us build it out. And our goal is to make it so fantastic that everybody would want to use it and would make it available for firms that we're not even invested into. Normally, I ask um, people on the podcast why they selected specific technology, but uh, Babu Sivadasan and I go way back, so I know why you picked Jiffy AI. That's a great product. Uh, but why did you pick it? What, what's, what, is, what is it about? I mean, I know what they, what they do, but for people that don't know, what is it about their technology that you believe is going to help you with building your tech stack? Well, I've known Babu for a couple of decades now and, uh, and the folks that uncork for quite a while as well. And so you need two things. You need to be able to actually be agnostic as to where the data resides. And Babu's team has done something using AI that I've never seen before, which is it puts you in the business of simply auditing the underlying data rather than pulling all the data out. So that's really unique. Using bots to move the data as if it's a human from one place to another, that's a very special thing. Because the biggest nightmare, as you know, with data is data accuracy and then 
moving it so that the fields populate the right fields. Mm. And so that's a very unique element. And then the folks that own Quark is one of the other, other solutions we're looking at. A no-code, codeless environment makes it a lot easier for firms that don't have super advanced technology people to get things done. And we know the founders and the leadership teams of both those enterprises, we're working with others as well, to be clear. And we typically, you know, they're all looking to crack the RIA space, but need somebody like us who knows it well and can actually bring large RIAs to help design how to scale and create something that is open sourced, open architecture solution that really doesn't care what subcomponents you want to use. But it's interesting, we launched FinLife a decade ago. Yeah. And really, there's no solution that actually includes the middleware. There's mm -hmm. nice advisor client tools. I'm like, none of it matters if you don't have middleware. It's true. I mean, we work with a lot of RIAs and broker dealers and, and, and the data, we call the data um, uh, data as an asset, right? You yeah, your data is gold. Asset to your data, is the, data is the new gold. It certainly is. Um, you've completed over 150 M&A transactions uh, in your time. So uh, we, all, we always know, you've told us what things you're looking for in firms that you want to acquire, but what are some of the red flags that would cause you to cancel a deal that you started out on? Well, first and foremost is culture. Uh, we have we uh, we have three steps in every transaction we do. The first one is uh, what we call a WAC score, willingness, ability, capacity. And that first is, is this somebody who actually wants to do what is necessary? And so a lot of people will say it. Some people just aren't willing to do it. And so there's no reason to go much further. You can never fix a lack of willingness. Uh, so if somebody's a control freak and they're always going to want to make every decision, they're never going to get to 25 billion. And if they are, it's not going to be with us because we're not smart enough to know how to work with someone like that. Uh, we have to like the people. And uh, and there are people who have fixed mindset and there are people who have growth mindset. And if you read nothing or a, take nothing away from this, go read that and study the difference between growth mindset and fixed mindset. Because mm. uh, if you have a fixed mindset, you're, that's what's constraining your growth. So... Um, so willingness. Second is ability. Do they actually have the skills necessary to execute on that? And a lot of people don't have the skills within their structure, within their firm to actually execute what they would like. And the last is capacity. Do you have the resources necessary to execute? We love firms that have willingness and ability, but not the capacity because we can bring the capacity. Yeah. We can solve for a lack of ability because we know how to hire and recruit. And I've, I know a lot of people in the industry, and so does Terry. But we can't really fix willingness. So cultural fit is number one for me. And what do they treat their people like? How important are clients to them? Are they willing to share control? Are they willing to think creatively and in a new way to, to revolutionize the industry? Because you've got to change is hard, but change is a requirement if you're going to grow. You cannot grow. You can't go to where you want to go doing it the way you've done it because otherwise you'd be there already. So you just need to be willing to adapt and change the way you work. The second thing we do is a, a fit score. What's the size of the business? What are the opportunities of inherent in it? And what's missing that we can add to the table? If we can't add anything to the success of an underlying business, they should just take the best price they can get because we can't help them. If there are gaps that we can identify, here's how we're going to help you, then we can. And we have this enterprise readiness assessment where we heat map them on 45 measurements across their business operations and management their tech stack and their growth strategies. And we actually give them a heat map 
compared to other one to $5 billion firms, and then compared to a $10 billion firm. And we identify the gaps and give that to you for free as a report. It takes about two to three hours to get the download, it takes us several hours to put it together, and then we deliver it to you and your management team. And we do that because we did that at United Capital. Even if we don't end up working together, we know we've done something good that's useful. We can also see what kind of reaction you have to us telling you, here's what needs to happen and whether you're willing to do it or not. You answered another of my questions already. That's fantastic. Uh, so uh, I love the enterprise readiness assessment. We do something similar here at Ezra Group, uh, working with with firms, because as you, as you mentioned, they don't a lot of firms don't really know where their gaps are when it yeah. comes to the business operations. So being able to go through and, and quickly show them, here's how you stack up against firms both at your current size and where you want to be. We call it a target operating model. Here's your current state, here's your future state, and here's the execution plan to get you there. Yeah. Well, I always ask uh, people who are on the podcast, um, we always know, we, we always learn more from our mistakes than from our successes. So in your career, you've had a lot of successes, but what's a mistake you've learned the most from? Well, I tell everyone this, this uh, one piece of advice, and it's based on many bad experiences. I tend to be a fairly confident human being, but the things that will take you down are, the, are whenever you are absolutely certain about anything. And so I have added a mantra for many, many years of my life, which is ask the question, what if I'm wrong? Hmm. Uh, and it doesn't matter what the specifics are. Every mistake was rooted in one underlying premise, which was, I know that I'm right. Everyone else is wrong. And that has led to when I lost great talented people, it's because I didn't open the door to my being wrong. Mm. And that meant that they could never really contribute in the way they could have mm. in my younger life. I learned a lot about being adaptable and listening to advice to the fact that I was drawn to people who were just like me, great salespeople who are great visionaries. And frankly, you don't need an army of those people. <laughs> if nobody can actually build the train track, it doesn't matter where you're envisioning going. And so I think at its core, when I strip down all of the lessons that I've ever had, they're all rooted on the same fundamental question that every individual should ask themselves. And the more confident you are, the more you should ask this question yourself. What if I'm wrong? Because it's true that even as a parent and a spouse and as a human being, a lot of what you think is true are simply opinions that you tell yourself. You're a prisoner of your thoughts. And the only way to break free of that prison and to get to places you never imagined is to break away all of the narrative you tell yourself about what's true and fixed. And the more that I challenge everything I think I know is true, the more open and growing I am as a human. And even if I don't succeed, if Rise doesn't end up being a huge success, I will still have learned a ton that is, makes it very useful for whatever I do in my life. So if I would take a, one takeaway from everyone here, just be more humble about the fact that whatever you are so completely certain is the truth, it's just an opinion. That 99% of what you think is true is not in fact true. But people find that hard to believe because <laughs> we get so fixed in our mindset that, oh no, this is right and this is wrong. <laughs> but there are a thousand versions why that might not be true, at least in the context you have it. I think the world would be a much different place if people realize that most of what they think they know is wrong. 
It's just an opinion. It's not wrong. It's just mm. one part. I'll give you a, a good thing to wrap, uh, wrap up here. I studied something called Vedanta. And mm. very, in the very beginning, this was years and years and years ago, they held up a pencil in the middle of the room and they said, look at this pencil and tell me what you see. And there was a, we were all around a big conference table and we would all write down what we see and they say, you know, you're assuming that because you see your side, you know exactly what's on the other side, but you can't see the other side. You can't see if there's scratches, if it's a different color, if it's broken, if it's got a crack, you have no, you see only what you see. And in fact, what you see right now, if I spin the pencil just a little, is completely different. As something as real as a pencil, you don't ever have full perspective of it. And if that's true about something like a pencil, imagine about how true that is about things like laws or opinions mm -hmm. or judgments, which are much softer. And it, it, it's helpful to just realize that there are a thousand truths, not just one truth. But it doesn't mean that you're right or wrong. The world is filled with and. It's not mm -hmm. actually or. And so, you know, I think being expansive in your thinking is quite useful in almost every aspect of your life. That even if you turn out to be accurate, that it's not harmful to hear a different point of view that might adjust and add to your perspective. Not necessarily disrupt your perspective, not prove that you're right or wrong, but we tend to be very binary in our thinking in, in the world. And that comes at a huge price. Joe, I could go on for another hour with you here, but uh -huh. out of time, my friend. Um, where can people find more information about Rise Growth Partners? You can just go to risegrowth.com. Pretty easy, R-I-S-E, growth.com. And you can learn a little bit about us. We officially launched in 2024, uh, but we're always looking for fantastic people and great partnerships, obviously. And uh, thank you so much for taking the time. Hopefully this was interesting to your audience. I guarantee it will be. Thanks, Joe. Oh, you bet. Hey, it's Greg again. Here are my top five takeaways from my interview with Joe Duran. Number one, control your own destiny, control your own data. I'm a big fan of that. We tell our clients all the time. We're doing a lot of work in data warehouses uh, and integrations to help our RIA clients do just that. He's got three areas of focus for Rise Growth. One is improving efficiency uh, for the RIAs they invest in, helping to onboard clients at scale. They're going to build aggregated management systems and analytics, and they're laying the groundwork for AI-powered next best actions, which I think is really going to be a huge uh, revolutionary benefit of AI. A couple of points. I've actually got five points here. I usually do three, you noticed. But Joe's got so much good information to share. I, I, I'm out to five. Uh, there's lots of money floating around, but not a lot of people with experience building uh, high-growth RIAs, as Joe mentioned. The natural plateau capacity limits of RIAs, a billion, two and a half billion, five billion, ten billion. I found uh, Joe's comments there quite interesting. We get calls usually from firms at those levels, coincidentally, around the five to seven billion is a very common uh, range for RAs to reach out to Ezra Group for help uh, with their technology and operations. And uh, asking Joe about his 150 M&A transactions, some red flags, the biggest one was culture, and they have a, a proprietary score they give to firms they're looking to acquire called the Willingness, ability, capacity score, which is uh, measures whether they have a gross 
growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. So super interesting stuff from Joe. So happy he was available for uh, me to interview and talk to. All right, you've made it to the end of another episode of the Wealth Tech Today podcast. Please go to our website, ezragroup.com, scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our newsletter. Once a month, you'll receive an email, chock full of wealth management goodness, news, information, updates. You will not be disappointed. Thanks again for listening and talk to you all again next time.